Hello, and welcome to the June 2017 episode of the LGBT Law Notes podcast. Happy Pride Month to all of our listeners. I am Ed Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. First up this month, we got two breakthrough decisions for transgender rights under federal law uh, in the month of May. Can you bring our listeners up to speed, Art? Okay. First, uh, we got a unanimous three-judge panel decision out of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in Chicago upholding a trial court's preliminary injunction that requires a Wisconsin school district to allow Ashton Whitaker, a transgender boy, to use the boys' restroom facilities in his high school during his senior year. Uh, Now, some people may immediately hear this and say, but what about Gavin Grimm? Didn't he win in the Fourth Circuit? But there's a big difference. Uh, I should just interrupt you quickly to say a picture of him in his cap and gown has gone viral today on social media. Gavin Grimm has graduated. graduated. But uh, the situation with his case, uh, as people will recall, uh, the Fourth Circuit had reversed uh, District Judge Dumar's decision to dismiss Gavin Grimm's Title IX claim, very similar facts uh, to the Whitaker case, and that was appealed, and the Fourth Circuit said that a, a written interpretation of Title IX that had been issued by the uh, Department of Education in the Obama administration should have been deferred to by the district court Uh, The Fourth Circuit uh, had said that the regulation in question about restroom facilities, uh, single-sex restroom facilities, was ambiguous when it came to the issue of what do you do with transgender students, and therefore they should have deferred to the interpretation of the Obama administration because it was a reasonable interpretation of the statute. And that was appealed to the Supreme Court, which granted cert, and then shortly before the oral argument was to be held, the Trump administration withdrew the interpretation but did not replace it with a new one. They just said that it needed more study. So the interpretation withdrawn, there's nothing to defer to. Uh, so they, they vacated the Fourth Circuit's decision and returned the case back to the Fourth Circuit, which has scheduled oral argument in the fall on the merits of uh, whether that uh, Title IX complaint should have been dismissed. But in the meanwhile, Gavin Grimm has graduated. Uh, so there's some question in some people's minds, about whether his case is moot. I don't think it is because what was being attacked was a formal policy that was adopted by the Board of Education. They passed resolutions, etc. And that's an effect, and that could affect any other transgender students in the system. And even if there aren't any now, there may be in the future. So I don't think that the attack on the policy is moot. By contrast, in this uh, Whitaker case against the Kenosha Unified School District Number 1 in Wisconsin, uh, Whitaker is also graduating this month. And in this case, there was no written policy. Uh, so I don't know whether this case, uh, I mean, the preliminary injunction has been withheld, but it's sort of pointless. I mean, if they're holding the commencement ceremony at the school, maybe he can celebrate by using the boys' restroom right. at the school. Uh, but, and I guess if he's coming back for alumni events. But uh, and, and we're not told in the opinion whether there are any other transgender students in the school. But in any, event, any event, uh one of the interesting things to come out of both these cases, to my way of reading, is how supportive the mothers of these transgender boys are. 
I mean, in both cases, the mothers have been real champions. In fact, there was a, a wonderful op-ed piece in the Washington Post recently by Deirdre Grimm uh, about uh, the, the human rights of her son and why it was such an important struggle uh, and how proud she was of him mm-hmm. for, for deciding to go public and really push it. Uh, so in, in any rate, in this case, uh, another interesting fact is that it was an all-female panel of the Seventh Circuit. Uh, two judges uh, appointed by Bill Clinton and one by George H.W. Bush. Uh, and uh, Judge Williams, who uh, Ju- uh, Anne Claire Williams, who wrote the court's opinion, joined Seven. by uh, Diane Pamela Wood and Ilana Rovner. I was going to say, the Seventh Circuit has really become a, an LGBT rights machine here. And, and it's interesting because the majority of the judges on the circuit are Republican right. appointees, but... You know, as another point that that I make uh, elsewhere in law notes this month, we'll we'll talk about what's coming up in the Second Circuit, that one shouldn't jump to conclusions about how judges are going to vote on LGBT issues just on the basis of the party of the president who appointed them. Uh, Partly because uh, many of these people were appointed long ago. There are still judges appointed by Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. And although uh, the Reagan Justice Department had a litmus test for recommending judges uh, to the courts of appeals that they uh, had to be, uh, quote-unquote, pro-life, stuff like that, they, they, they denied having a litmus test. They said we didn't ask the question, but they wouldn't knowingly nominate anyone who didn't seem regular uh, from their point of view on that issue. But they evidently didn't have any similar litmus test on LGBT issues. And quite a few of the people that they appointed, including to the Seventh Circuit, are really libertarian in their approach to the relationship between government and individuals and the right of people to live their lives. They're, many of them are con- convinced small government people who think that the government should stay out of people's lives unless it's absolutely necessary. And although the religious component of the party says it's absolutely necessary to be anti-gay – uh, the social libertarians tend not to go in that direction. And, and so we get people like uh, Richard Posner and Frank Easterbrook and, who vote in favor of gay rights positions even though they're economic conservatives uh, and small government people in other respects. Mm-hmm. So in this case, uh, it was really not difficult for the Seventh Circuit to reach the decision that Title IX would cover a gender identity discrimination claim because for one thing, the circuit's precedents support following Title VII on construing what sex discrimination is. And as all our listeners are aware, the Seventh Circuit itself has taken a leadership position, uh, recently became the first circuit uh, to affirmatively state that sexual orientation discrimination claims are covered under Title VII. That is embracing a broad interpretation of sex discrimination not the sort of narrow essentialist interpretation that's been pushed by uh, opponents of LGBT rights. Uh, And so that really transfers well. They pointed out that in the Hively decision, which we talked about, uh, I guess it was two months ago, uh, the on-bank ruling, the court really focused in on the old-priced Waterhouse case from 1989, on the Supreme Court's embrace of the idea that Title VII uh, ban on sex discrimination broadly involves gender discrimination and situations where people encounter discrimination because of their failure to conform to gender stereotypes. And that transfers very 
nicely. The, the fit is very good to gender identity discrimination claims, which are about gender, about how people present themselves, how they live their lives with respect to their sexual identity. Uh, and so as far as this court is concerned, discrimination because of gender identity is sex discrimination. And the f opening sentence here in the opinion is really powerful and sort of uh, gives you a sense of what you can expect. Uh, Ashton Ash Whitaker is a 17-year-old high school senior boy who has what would seem like a simple request to use the boys' restroom while at school. Yeah, and the court said, and it should have been a simple request. And in fact, the interesting thing here, uh, in some, you know, the parallels to, to the Gavin Grimm case are really extraordinary. Gavin Grimm started using the restroom and everything was fine until some kids told their parents and some grandparents and they showed up at the Board of Education and they went crazy. In this case, uh, it's, it's a little bit different uh, because in the Gavin Grimm case, uh, when Grimm and his mother went to school authorities and said, can he use the boys' restroom, they said, sure. And so the school administration was on his side. It was the, uh, the parents going to the Board of Education and becoming a big political issue in the community that turned it around against Gavin Grimm. In this case, uh, Whitaker and his mom went to the school principal to talk about allowing him. And this had been a very gradual process. Uh, he came out to his parents as, as transgender when he was in the eighth grade before even he went to high school. And uh, on that summer before he started his freshman year at the high school, he had already started to transition in the sense of cutting his hair short and dressing in more masculine clothing and uh, working hard to the extent he could without any hormone treatment or anything else at that point because he hadn't been diagnosed with gender dysphoria yet. Uh, so he showed up for his freshman year presenting sort of ambiguously, but more or less as a boy, and asking people to call him Ash. Uh, sophomore year, he was more open about it. He was asking, uh, asking everyone to refer to him by male pronouns, etc. cetera. Uh, and he got started with uh, uh, professional health care people. Uh, in his junior year, he started taking hormones, got a, a formal... Uh, gender dysphoria diagnosis, and by the fall of his senior year, he had a legal name change. Uh, so it was a gradual process. But at some point, they went to the school and they said, can he use the boys' restrooms? And the answer was no. And ultimately, the answer was, until you get a new birth certificate designating you as male, we are going to carry you on the rolls as female, we're going to treat you as female, and you're going to have to use either the girls' restroom, which he refused to do, or we have this uh, gender-neutral restroom in the main office, which you can use, which was very inconvenient. Mm -hmm. and Making him late for class. Making him late for class and also stigmatizing in the sense that he was the only student who was allowed to use it. And he had to use it. He, he said, uh, at this point, using the girls' restroom would be totally contradictory to my transition. I'm, I'm living as a boy. I am a boy. Uh, and ultimately, uh, he decided to use the boys' restrooms anyway and just see if he could evade detection. And for a large period, point of time, he evaded detection entirely. He was using the boys' restroom during his junior year. And during his senior year, for six months, he got away with it. And then in February, a teacher 
went into the boys' restroom and saw him washing his hands and reported to the principal. And from that point on, his life was like hell. It was... He was, he was playing this cat-and-mouse game because they instructed the security personnel to monitor his restroom use to be sure he didn't go into the boys' restroom. They tried to accommodate him because there were some single-stall restrooms elsewhere on the campus, which were kept locked. I guess they were used by teachers. And he was given a key. He was the only student who was given a key to those restrooms. But they were all the way across the high school campus, and they made him just as late for classes and he had an additional medical complication. He has a condition that causes him to become faint or even uh, dizzy and possibly pass out if he becomes dehydrated. Yep. And so any attempt by him to cut back his liquid intake in order to avoid having to go to the restroom between classes was going to have side effects, which he, in fact, experienced when he tried to do it. Yep. So this was a, a serious problem for him. Uh, so the courts... Uh, First he filed – well, first he got a lawyer who wrote a, wrote a letter to the law school threatening to take action against him. The high school. The high school, and, and they, didn't, uh, they didn't back down. Uh, then he files with the Department of Education, Office of Civil Rights, and it looks like it's going to get bogged down in an administrative process. And it was already the summer before his senior year, so he went to court. And under Title IX, you don't have to exhaust administrative remedies. You right. can go directly to court. And he also filed an equal protection claim. Uh, claiming a 14th Amendment violation. And what is significant about this case is not only did the court affirm the preliminary injunction on Title IX grounds, it also affirmed it on equal protection grounds because uh, the trial judge had uh, relied on both. And the court said, even though our practice is to avoid making constitutional issues and we can resolve a case based on statutory construction, uh, as long as the district court did it, we might as well do it too. Uh, who knows what will happen? You know, what if this case goes on bank? Right. Which theories will the circuit use? So they also looked at the equal protection and they said, because we believe this is a sex discrimination case, then it should be treated the way all sex discrimination cases are under the equal protection clause, which means heightened scrutiny, which means that the state or the uh, government entity that's being challenged, they have to have a, a an exceedingly persuasive reason for adopting this policy which is going to be considered as unconstitutional unless proven otherwise. That's what happens with heightened scrutiny. Uh, they, the burden of proof gets shifted to the government. Uh, and they said that all that the school district gives us is conjecture about problems that may or may not happen. And since this boy has been using the boys' room, for six months already with no problem. The only person who had a problem was a teacher who walked in and saw him washing his hands and knew he wasn't supposed to be in there. But otherwise, students weren't complaining. Right. And, and the same with the Gavin Grimm situation in Virginia. The students are okay. You know, teenagers get it at this point. The culture has moved on. Teenagers right. get it. They accept transgender classmates. They accept gay and lesbian classmates. Uh, it's uh, frequently administrators and parents and ministers in the community who want to make hell, raise right. hell, that, that are the problem. So this is one big uh, breakthrough. The other interesting breakthrough, it's sort of unusual, is a case uh, that we have out of the U.S. District Court in Pennsylvania uh, called Blatt against Cabela's Retail Incorporated. Uh, Caitlin Blatt is a transgender woman 
who uh, brought an action against her employer under both Title VII and the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, And she claimed that she encountered discrimination because of her gender identity as a transgender woman. And the employer moved to dismiss the Americans with Disabilities Act claim on the ground that there is a provision in the Americans with Disabilities Act itself which was apparently intended by Congress to exclude uh, being transgender as a ground of being considered a person with a disability and thus protected under the law. Unlike Title VII, which doesn't have protected classes, it just has forbidden grounds of discrimination. The ADA has a protected class. In order to be protected under the ADA, you have to be a person with a disability who is uh, able to perform the essential functions of the job that you want. Uh, And in defining disability, the statute says, disability shall not include transvestism, transsexualism, pedophilia, exhibitionism, voyeurism, gender identity disorders not resulting from physical impairments or other sexual behavior disorders. And that's pretty sweeping. And uh, until very recently, that was considered to completely preclude the possibility of treating someone who is transgender as being a person with a disability uh, under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And that's significant because the ADA doesn't just forbid discrimination. It requires employers to make reasonable accommodations. Uh, It's an affirmative requirement on employers that is generally not present under Title VII. Uh, And in addition, it provides protection, specific protection uh, for medical information and things of that sort. Uh, So being covered under the ADA would be a really big thing for uh, people who uh, are transgender. And in this case, the court, bowing to a new theory that has been proposed recently, there are are a few other cases uh, on file, but this is the one where we've got a decision now, uh, arguing, first of all, gender dysphoria itself, the condition, the medical condition that is diagnosed in many, although not all, transgender people, gender dysphoria is itself a disabling condition within the broad definition of a disability that was adopted in the 2008 amendments to the Americans with Disability Act. Uh, And furthermore, if you are to single out something that is so obviously a disability and not included with the rest of the statute, doesn't that create an equal protection issue? That transgender people who suffer from the disabling condition of gender dysphoria are being treated unequally to other people with disabilities. Uh, And what courts should do when confronted with a plausible constitutional problem of the statute is to construe the statute in a way that will avoid the constitutional problem. And in this case, the federal district court Uh, This is uh, District Judge Joseph F. Leeson, Jr., the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, said, I have been presented with persuasive argument that gender dysphoria fits very well into the definition of a disability as long as I give a narrow construction to the exclusionary provision. And the exclusionary provision deals with the status and what I'm being presented with is someone who has had a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. And when you have situations, for example, where people are transitioning, 
someone who was hired uh, presenting as male and is now transitioning to female or vice versa. Uh, gender dysphoria diagnosis is a prerequisite to doing that. I mean, to getting people to give you hormones and to, uh, to give you surgical reassignment and everything. And so uh, Judge Leeson says, it's pretty clear to me that when we have a gender dysphoria diagnosis, we have someone with a disability which is a physical or mental impairment that substantially impairs major life activities. And various major life activities were identified in this case, uh, interacting with others, reproducing social and occupational function would be affected by severe gender dysphoria. Uh, so we said, on the face of it, it seems like this is a case where there is a reasonable interpretation I can adopt that will avoid the constitutional legal protection problem, and I'm going to adopt it, and I'm going to refuse to dismiss the ADA claim. Now, this doesn't mean that Ms. Blatt is going to win that claim at trial or even on a summary judgment motion after discovery. Uh, there is going to have to be a substantial showing that gender dysphoria actually does uh, substantially limit major life activities. As far as we're going here with the motion to dismiss, all we have are allegations that are deemed to be true. Uh, and uh, furthermore, we'll have to show uh, whether uh, Ms. Blatt is able to perform the essential job functions or whether there is some problem there. It's, it's interesting that uh, the employer didn't even bother to file a motion to dismiss on the Title VII claim because in the Third Circuit, I think a, a transgender employee has a sexual stereotyping claim under Title VII. Right. So it's an interesting situation. But... We'll see where this goes. We'll see whether the employer uh, tries to appeal this. Uh, since uh, a denial of a motion to dismiss is uh, not directly appealable. Right. So it may be a while. Yeah. I think ultimately maybe this case will end up at the Third Circuit on a summary judgment. Well, the plaintiff here, uh, in addition to being represented by a, uh, a Philadelphia practitioner, Sidney Gold, yeah. also had the Civil Justice Clinic of Quinnipiac University School of Law participating. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting when you look around the country, especially when you look at the amicus briefs filed in major LGBT litigation, that law school clinics are becoming very active yeah. on LGBT rights, and not just the ones that specialize in LGBT issues, yeah. which there are a few around the country, but also just civil rights clinics. This is this is a big issue. Getting around this exclusion was quite a breakthrough. <laughs> this, is a, this is a big breakthrough. There are other cases on file. Uh, this is the first. Yeah. All right, we will take a short break, and when we return, we'll discuss the latest Title VII developments in the Second Circuit. We are back in the Second Circuit. There were some big developments in May on the Title VII front. Can you tell us about it, Art? Yeah, uh, I feel like we're saying where we left off last time. Yeah. Uh, this has been an unfolding story over the past few months. Uh, during the month, months of April and into May, we had three petitions or motions filed with the Second Circuit asking for on-bank reconsideration of lower court decisions in cases involving sexual orientation discrimination claims under Title VII. Uh, the first petition which was filed back uh, in uh, mid-April, on April 19th, was filed by the ACLU in a case called Cargian versus Breitling USA, in which uh, uh, District Judge George Daniels in Manhattan had dismissed a Title VII claim by a gay watch salesman uh, 
against Breitling USA, uh, he found that Second Circuit appellate precedents uh, reject sexual orientation claims as a form of sex discrimination under Title VII. Uh, he ruled on September 29th, and just as a matter of routine, an appeal was filed to the Second Circuit, where it was just kind of sitting. Uh, and then, all of a sudden, uh, the Second Circuit, a Second Circuit panel issued the Christensen decision on March 27, which we reported on previously, uh, in which uh, a, a three-judge panel held that Title VII. Uh, would not apply to a sexual orientation discrimination claim, but would apply to a sexual stereotyping claim, even if sexual orientation appeared to be a factor in the case. Uh, so in that case, there was a remand to the district court to consider it as a sexual stereotyping case under Title VII if the uh, plaintiff were to file an amended complaint and come up with better uh, factual allegations to support that claim. Uh, but in the meantime, in that case... Uh, Chief Judge Robert Katzman of uh, the Second Circuit had uh, filed a concurring opinion together with a federal district judge who was sitting by designation on the panel arguing that it was time for the Second Circuit to reconsider this issue in light of what's happening elsewhere, especially the Seventh Circuit's Hively decision and the EEOC's Baldwin decision. Uh, and he said, in an appropriate case, we should do this. And it was as much as sending out a signal to people, please ask for on-bank review. And at first it seemed that the attorney in that case, uh, Susan Lask, was not going to do that. Her, her initial reaction to uh, reporters was, well, now I'm going to go to trial on the sexual stereotyping claim. But then then the, uh, the uh, on-bank petition was filed by the ACLU in the Cargin case, and all of a sudden that changed things. So she filed an on-bank petition on April 28th. Uh, but in the meantime, there had been another development on April 18th a different three-judge panel had ruled in the case of Donald Zarda, or the estate of Donald Zarda, since he died after the uh, initial lawsuit was filed, uh, on the same question, Title VII, sexual orientation. Three-judge panel said, we are bound by circuit precedent. And uh, Zarda's attorney was red-hot to file an on-bank petition. He was all raring to go. And the difference also in the cases is in Christensen, you know, they said that he could go back on a gender stereotyping But theory. not on Zarda. Zarda really needs this or his case is over. Right. And, and in the Zarda case, uh, which was uh, litigated out in the Eastern District of New York, the other two in the Southern District, and being out in the Eastern District, it got less attention. Uh, the, the trial judge's opinion was not officially reported. Uh, but what happened there was uh, the trial judge rejected the Title VII claim based on circuit precedent, but retained jurisdiction over a New York State Human Rights and Act And there was claim. a trial. And there was a trial, and the jury decided against the plaintiff. Right. Uh, but it seems that the charge that the trial judge gave to the jury may have been an incorrect charge. Uh, it certainly would have been incorrect under Title VII because it suggested that the sexual orientation of Zarda had to be the but-for cause of the discrimination. And in this case, uh, there were multiple factors that appear to have gone into the decision to terminate him. Uh, and that may be an incorrect uh, charge under the New York Human Rights Law. I'm not totally clear on that. And in fact, the, the panel dropped a footnote saying, we take no opinion, we make, we make no uh, position on whether the judge's charge to the jury under the New York Human Rights Law was correct. Right. And there's some question about it. But it certainly was incorrect under Title VII because under Title VII, 
under an amendment to Title VII that Congress did to clarify the approach in dual motive cases, uh, as long as sexual orientation, or I guess for Title VII you have to say sex, was a factor, a motivating factor, then there should be a judgment for the plaintiff, even if the employer shows that there were other factors that would also support their action. Uh, because the purpose of Title VII is to say you're not supposed to take sexual orientation into account, assuming assuming the ultimate uh, conclusion that we want, that sexual orientation claims are covered under Title VII. Right. So you're not supposed to take it into account. If it had any role in affecting the decision, you violated the statute. Uh, your remedy may be restricted if the employer shows that there are other reasons that would justify its action. But you'd still be entitled to a declaratory judgment. You'd be entitled to attorney's fees to the extent that you prevailed. You might be entitled to certain damages, etc. cetera. Uh, so at any rate, in the Zarda case, because of the charge that was given to the jury, the jury's conclusion is not really in any way binding or preclusive as to Title VII. If Zarda's claim is covered under Title VII, he would be entitled to a new trial with a properly charged jury. Or in this point, it's his estate, which is uh, suing for damages. Uh, so uh, the case uh, of uh, Zarda, the uh, on-bank petition was filed early in May, and there was another development that sort of adds to this and maybe helped to prompt the circuit to vote to grant on-bank review. It's hard to know why, but getting three on-bank petitions within a matter of weeks of each other. And the Hively decision. And the Hively decision, the EOC, the, yeah. the trend. But there's also this Philpot case. It was decided on May 3 uh, by uh, Judge Hellerstein, a senior judge in the Southern District of New York. Uh, Philpot was the vice president of student affairs at uh, SUNY's College of Optometry from 2010 through 2015. And he alleged that the president of the college and uh, one of his colleagues there made a series of discriminatory comments, excluded him from projects and meetings, because of his sexual orientation. And when he complained about this, he was fired in retaliation. Uh, so he filed a Title VII case, uh, and uh, the employer moved to dismiss it on the grounds the Second Circuit precedent precludes it. And Judge Hellestein said, well, hold on a minute. Look at what's happening in the Second Circuit. Look at what's happening here. Uh, we've got all these other cases. We've got the Hively case just came out. Uh, another district judge up in Connecticut in the Second Circuit had already refused to dismiss a Title VII claim on the grounds that a recent uh, Second Circuit decision had actually held upheld an associational claim, a race associational claim, mm -hmm. uh, that it's a violation of Title VII to discriminate against someone because of the race of their sexual partner. Yeah. He said, well, by analogy, shouldn't it be a violation of Title VII to discriminate against someone because of their sex of their sexual partner? Yeah. Uh, and so uh, that was Judge Edgington up in Connecticut had refused to dismiss a Title VII case in a, uh, a uh, lawsuit against the Hartford public school system. Yeah. So uh, he says, I think given all that's happening, these on-bank petitions on file, all this kind of stuff, it would be imprudent now at this improper. early stage, improper at this early stage in the case to dismiss the Title VII claim because something's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> something's going to happen, and these persuasive arguments are being made. And so he rejected the suggestion that he should just allow Phil Plot 
to file an amended complaint trying to turn it into a stereotyping case. He said, the fact the plaintiff has framed his complaint in terms of sexual orientation discrimination and not gender stereotyping discrimination is immaterial. I decline to embrace an illogical and artificial distinction between gender stereotyping discrimination and sexual orientation discrimination, and in so doing, I joined several other courts throughout the country. And he saw the writing on the wall, because yeah. three weeks later they granted on Bach right. in the Second Circuit. And uh, the grant of on Bank was very specific. Uh, the court said, this is the question we want to be addressed. Does Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation through its prohibition of discrimination because of sex? And it specifically invited interesting parties, interested parties. I guess all parties are interesting yes. for us lawyers. But interested parties to submit amicus briefs. Yes. It put out a call, basically. They want to hear from yeah. everybody who has an interest in this question. Yeah. And they also adopted a pretty expedited schedule. Uh, they uh, they put it tentatively down for oral argument on September 26th. Uh, amicus briefs are due July 26th. Petitioner's the amicus briefs brief for our side are due June 26th. Uh, June 26th. Yep. Okay. Well, petitioner's brief is due yep. June 26th. Yep. Okay. July 26th, uh, amicus briefs, petitioner's reply brief by August 9th, uh, respondent's brief by July 26th. In other words, they're pushing it along. Yeah. Uh, and I think they're probably pushing because the Second Circuit can frequently issue opinions pretty quickly. I would suspect that if it's going to be heard September 26th, it's going to be decided by November, most likely. And a lot of uh, Second Circuit commentators have said the fact that they granted en banc looks pretty good for us because apparently they've only done it three times in the last seven years yeah. or something like that. And you mentioned the article about the ideological makeup of the court is right. very positive for us. Right. It's at, at this point, there are seven out of 11 uh, judges, active judges on the Second Circuit who were appointed by Democratic presidents. And this is another sort of interesting sidelight. If you look at the three-judge panel in Christensen, we had two active district uh, circuit judges and a district judge. The district judge, of course, doesn't sit on the on bank. Uh, Cargin uh, was – it was sort of interesting. Uh, in the Cargin case, the ACLU – filed the on-bank petition arguing it would be a waste of time to go to a three-judge panel. So there's no three-judge panel opinion. So we don't have any circuit judges who have ruled in the Cargin case. On the Zarda case, what we had was an active judge and two senior judges. And normally, senior judges do not participate in on-bank. But uh, if they sat on the panel of the case that goes on-bank, they're usually invited Right, this is what happened in the Seventh Circuit. And, yes, and, and this happened both in the Second Seventh Circuit and here. So the two judges who sat in the on-bank panel are going to get – or sat in the three-judge panel are going to sit on the on-bank panel. And they are both judges appointed by Democratic presidents. So that ups the ante. And the uh, one we got – one of the ones we got in the Seventh Circuit was appointed by Gerald Ford. Yes. And we ultimately did not get his vote no. uh, in Hively. But I think we'll have better luck with these senior judges. Yeah. Well, these senior judges were, were appointed by uh, Obama and Clinton. Right. So it's, it's amazing to think that Obama, by having a full two terms, actually appointed judges who are now senior. Right. <laughs> and the good amazing. thing, I think he had – so the senators from the states that make up a circuit have a say in – who can get on the court. But Obama had a lot more luck in the with Schumer circuit. and Gillibrand getting <laughs> his judges through to the Second Circuit than right. he did in some of the states where they have Republican senators. Right. So uh, so things are looking good in the Second Circuit. 
And uh, just to remind people that there is a petition for on-bank rehearing in in the Evans case in the 11th Circuit, so it's possible over the summer that we'll have an on-bank grant there too. Yeah. Uh, so this this may be a very big year for this, and ultimately, at some point, this is probably going to get to the Supreme Court, but not necessarily. If if all the circuits issue consistent rulings on this, uh, resolving the existing splits with older circuit decisions, uh, there may be no need for Supreme Court review. We'll see. Who knows? All right. We will take another short break, and when we return, we'll discuss an interesting Kentucky Court of Appeals decision over whether refusing to print pride t-shirts violated a local anti-discrimination ordinance. All right, we're back. A very interesting case has come up in Kentucky over whether a t-shirt vendor who refused to print pride t-shirts for a gay group violated a local anti-discrimination ordinance that explicitly covers sexual orientation. What happened here, Art? Okay, so this is in uh, in Lexington, uh, Kentucky, and which is sort of a hotbed of gay rights agitation in a state that is not particularly friendly right. on the state level. Uh, so we don't have any anti-discrimination protection on the state level. And what we do have on the state level is a state religious freedom restoration act, which also comes into play here. Uh, so... What happened was that the president of the local gay and lesbian service organization, which puts on pride each year in Lexington, uh, wanted to order custom-made T-shirts to sell to people to come to pride. And these were T-shirts that had a logo and, you know, had, had some design elements and said pride, fifth anniversary pride or something like that. It didn't even say gay on it or lesbian or anything like that. Uh, there was going to be discreet T-shirts that you could wear away from Pride and not risk being immediately assaulted by homophobes, okay. one hopes. Yep. But at any rate, uh, so the president of, of the organization uh, calls up this company called Hands-On Originals, which, among other things, makes custom T-shirts, and uh, talks to the person and says, we want it for our Pride thing. And the person says, well, what, what's that about? And when he explains that it's the uh, LGBTQ community's annual celebration, etc., the guy says, I can't do that because of my Christian beliefs. Refused the business. Yeah. So they went somewhere else, and they had the T-shirts made somewhere else, but they also filed a discrimination claim with the Lexington Fayette Urban County Human Rights Commission, which includes sexual orientation on its public accommodations, uh, anti-discrimination provisions. And the commission came to the logical conclusion that this was discrimination because of sexual orientation and uh, issued a ruling. And hands-on originals uh, appealed it to the state uh, circuit court, and the Fayette Circuit Court reversed the commission's decision. Uh, And it was appealed to the Court of Appeals, where there are sort of three distinct takes on the case. Uh, There was a decision by Chief Judge Joy Kramer, she said, I don't think that there was sexual orientation discrimination here. She said, they didn't turn down this order because of the sexual orientation of anybody. They turned it down because they didn't want to articulate a pro-gay rights message. So it wasn't turned down because of the status of the people. It was turned down because of the message they wanted to be communicated. So we don't think that's sexual orientation discrimination. Uh, so based on that, Chief Judge Kramer says we should affirm the circuit court, uh, which should reverse the commission. 
Now, uh, a concurring judge, Judge Deborah Lambert, said, you know, I agree. I agree with Judge Kramer. But in addition, I want to point out that here in Kentucky, we have a Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And the wording is similar to the federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which the Supreme Court construed in the Hobby Lobby case to say that a a small family-owned business can express its religious views by refusing to become complicit in stuff that's going to violate their uh, their beliefs. And uh, we think that they would have a defense under the State Religious Freedom Restoration Act to this charge, even if, if it were found that there was discrimination. And then we got a dissent from Judge Jeff Taylor who sort of – I mean the attitude of his dissent was who's fooling whom here. This is sexual orientation discrimination. It's clear the commission should be affirmed. Uh, so it's a very interesting sort of case. Uh, most of the cases we've had in the past that raised a similar issue have gone the other way. Uh, and I would point out that in some of the jurisdictions, there was no Religious Freedom Restoration Act. But in one of the earliest cases we have on this issue, there was, and that was in New Mexico uh, with, with the case of the uh, photographer. And the New Mexico Supreme Court said, we don't think our Religious Freedom Restoration Act gives a defense here to the photographer who has a wedding photography business and turns down a lesbian commitment ceremony. That was before New Mexico had same-sex marriage. Uh, but you know, most of these cases about usually small businesses refusing to sell goods and services in connection with same-sex weddings, uh, we've won those cases. Uh, so it will be interesting to see whether the uh, Lexington-Fayette Human Rights Commission decides to yeah. appeal this to the Kentucky Supreme Court. Uh, the last report I saw was just an article reporting on the opinion and quoting someone from the commission saying, well, we're going to have to have a meeting to discuss this. Obviously, they have a period of time in which to file an appeal. Yeah. So this may go up to the Kentucky Supreme Court. I did see, though, that com folks that watched this issue really closely were happy that – not happy that, that there was a loss here necessarily, but happy that this wasn't – majority opinion was not written on a First Amendment or a RIFRA ground, which right. would be a vehicle to get up to the U.S. Supreme Court potentially um, – in well, a case, I if it's a state RIFRA, it wouldn't. Not a state RIFRA, but the First Amendment. And the federal RIFRA wouldn't apply in the First right. Amendment. Well, you know, the First Amendment, what we're waiting for, and as it stands now, it's possible that next term in the Supreme Court will be a very consequential term for gay rights depending on what happens on two pending cert petitions. We have a cert petition pending on the Masterpiece Cake Shop case from Colorado. And uh, this is a, a refusal by a baker to make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple uh, that were actually getting married out of state because uh, at the time uh, Colorado didn't have uh, same-sex marriage yet. So they were marrying out of state in another state. We we're going to come back and have a big blowout ceremony at home so that they weren't going to inconvenience all their friends and relatives to have to travel out of state for their wedding. So they were going to come back and have a ceremony and they wanted to have a wedding cake. And the baker said, no, it violates my religion. Uh, and the uh, Colorado Human Rights Commission ruled in favor of the uh, the gay couple, and it was upheld in court. And a cert petition has been on file since last summer, and it has been relisted for consideration at Supreme Court conferences about a dozen times since then. Uh, they've sent down to the lower court to send up the record, which indicates there's interest. Uh, a lot of speculation that they were holding up on making a decision until they had a ninth justice. And interestingly, uh, Justice Gorsuch is from Colorado. But, of course, he was not on the state court. He's on the federal court, so he's not recused in this case. Uh, 
And it's it's sort of puzzling to me that they haven't announced anything because Gorsuch has finally started participating in the CERT uh, conferences. The only thing that scares me is that they're potentially waiting for someone to retire some of the judges, yes, the justices, so, which is terrifying. Yes, especially Justice Kennedy. Right. Now, the other CERT petition that's on file is from the Arkansas Supreme Court uh, from uh, one of these birth certificate cases involving uh, lesbian mothers, and donor insemination, and everything else. Uh, so that's uh, that, that was a bad case from Arkansas that I believe we uh, we, we discussed in a prior podcast, uh, and that's pending. That just went up. Uh, a cert petition was filed a few months ago, and they have contacted the Arkansas courts and asked them to send up the record, which means there's interest there. Yeah. So if both of these cert petitions are, are uh, granted, next year will be a big year for LGBT issues in the U.S. Supreme Court, mm-hmm. even if we don't end up with uh, – a Title VII sexual orientation case up there as well. Or a Title IX. Which, which is possible. Or a Title IX case. Uh, after all, the Fourth Circuit is is going back and doing the Grimm case again. And the Seventh Circuit, we have this decision. Uh, I don't think we have uh, a, a Court of Appeals, a, an adverse Court of Appeals decision on Title IX yet, uh, although we have an adverse District Court decision down in Texas, and that's uh, up before the Fifth Circuit which is a rather conservative circuit. So we'll see. We may end up with the sexual orientation issue or the Title IX issue before the Supreme Court as well. But going back to this case, I do think I do think there's a stronger First Amendment argument to being forced to print a T-shirt with a, you know, I, I know you said it didn't say gay or lesbian on it, a pride yeah. T-shirt that was pretty clear what that means. I think it's different than making a wedding cake or well, bringing flowers to it. I don't know. A, a wedding cake, you know, it's it's not just putting icing flowers on the cake. It's also putting, you know, congratulations to the happy couple or something. It's like expression. Right. In fact, certainly the photographer case had a plausible argument for some expression. The the court, the New Mexico Supreme Court in that case said, look, when you're a wedding photographer, you're not being asked to endorse anything. Right. You're just making a picture. Right. And the fact that you use some artistry and some creativity to make a, a nice album doesn't imply to anyone that you're endorsing anything, that yeah. you're doing anything political. It's a little different if you're printing a text. And that's why, you know, I look askance at the florists who say, oh, yeah, First Amendment, our floral arrangement is protected by the First Well, come on, yeah. what, what message are you communicating? Yeah. But uh, I think, you know, on a cake, is more like a T-shirt if you're going to take that icing and write something. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know that anyone thinks that bakers are endorsing the marriage of the person they bake a cake Well, and, and, and the hypothetical that gets put in the oral argument is, what if someone comes in from the American Nazi Party and asks you to do a cake with a swastika? Can you refuse? Right. All right. I hate to see that as being the analogy. But, right. you know, is, is a baker who is decorating a cake for a specific ceremony or uh, organization, uh, is this a situation where they're speaking? And where do we draw the line? when it's a commercial establishment that's selling its services and is not selling editorial services. It's, right. it's just you know mechanically reproducing what the customer wants. Is that speech that's protected by the First Amendment? Right. It's a very interesting issue. It is. And, uh, of course, the Supreme Court has accepted First Amendment arguments in the Boy Scouts case. Who knows what's going to happen, but we'll watch it closely for everybody and let our listeners know. Um, We'll take our last short break, and when we return for our Of Note segment, we'll discuss the wonderful marriage equality news out of Taiwan. (music) 
Uh, we're back to wrap up with our Of Note segment for this episode. The Constitutional Court of the Republic of China, also known as Taiwan, voted overwhelmingly that same-sex couples are entitled to marry and that anti-gay discrimination violates the Republic's Constitution. Can you tell our listeners about it, Art? Yeah, this uh, opinion was issued on May 24th, and it is the culmination of a rather lengthy campaign in Taiwan by LGBT rights people and their supporters to try to persuade the legislature to allow marriage equality. And uh, bills were introduced, hearings were held, uh, and somehow it just doesn't move. And so finally in frustration, there's this lawsuit which was uh, brought by a, an activist leader, uh, Chia Wei Chi, and also uh, the municipality in, in which he lives also joined in, in asking the court to decide this case because they were being sued for refusing marriage licenses. Uh, and this is a rather large court, although from looking at press accounts, it was unclear to me whether it has 14 or 15 members, but only two justices dissented. So this is, this is pretty overwhelming. They said that under their constitution – uh, there is a right to marry protected under Article 22 of their Constitution, and there's the people's right to equality under Article 7 of the Constitution. And they basically jumped on the bandwagon of the U.S. Supreme Court's Obergefell decision. And it's, it's interesting to me to see a court in Taiwan of all places echoing doctrinal arguments from the U.S. Supreme Court. They talked about gay people as a discrete and insular minority, which – American con law students will remember from footnote four in Caroline Products right. back from the 1930s in, in defining suspect classes under the Equal Protection Clause. Yep. And they were basically saying that uh, gay people should qualify as the equivalent in their law of a suspect class. Uh, they said sexual orientation is an immutable characteristic that is resistant to change. In our country, homosexuals were once denied by social tradition and custom in the past – as a result, they have long been locked in the closet and suffered various forms of de facto or de jure exclusion or discrimination. Besides, homosexuals, because of the demographic structure, have been a discrete and insular minority in the society. Impacted by stereotypes, they have been among those lacking political power for a long time, unable to overturn their legally disadvantaged status through the ordinary democratic process. Thus, the court has to intervene. Very interesting decision. I, I should clarify that I am reading quotes taken from a, an English-language press release issued by the court, which issued its decision in Chinese, a language in which I do not have or reading Mandarin, fluency. Right? I guess it's Mandarin. I'm yep. not sure what they speak in Taiwan. Yeah. But uh, it was uh, – the opinion's in Chinese, but they issue a press release in English, uh, which means they want the world to know. This opinion wasn't just for their people right. in Taiwan. And, and, course, and this is the first high court of any country in Asia. Yeah, but of course, you mentioned there's a. Com of course, right. the situation in Taiwan is complicated. Right, because China considers Taiwan part of China. They just happen to incidentally be self-governing at the moment. But right. you know, we try to look the other way, but we hope for unity. Yes. And uh, I understand that there was quite a lot of consternation in China when the president of Taiwan called up Donald Trump to congratulate him on his election, and Trump took the call. Right. Before he had had any contact with any People's Republic of China officials. Since Henry Kissinger yes. was Secretary of State and set up the sort of arrangement we right. have with China and that, Taiwan. That we officially don't recognize Taiwan as an independent country, but we do an awful lot of trade with them. Right, and give them arms. And give them, right, to protect themselves from the Chinese who any time might storm across the Sea of China and overtake them. Right. So, uh, but an interesting situation. The court gave them, gave the legislature two years 
to adjust legislation appropriately. And they said, if you don't do it, two years from today, it takes effect without legislation. Right. People can just go to the registrar's office and register as uh, as, as I was just mentioning to couples. you, I thought that was an interesting two time years. frame. I, I guess it's better than all deliberate speed. Well, you remember the first decision on marriage equality from the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court back in November of 2003. They gave the Massachusetts legislature six months. Right. And for six months, the legislature freaked out, tried to figure out what to do, uh, gave a first reading approval to a constitutional amendment to overturn the court, asked for an advisory opinion about whether civil unions would be okay. They were freaking out, but they did everything but what the court asked them to do. And so on the date, the opinion went into effect and people started marrying without the benefit of any change. In, uh, statutes. in statutes or regulations. I think they, the uh, clerks quickly ginned up forms by crossing things out and writing things in. Uh, so it looks like it's going to happen yeah. in Taiwan. Yeah. Um, really great news. And it's a part of the, part of the world where we, we need, uh, you know, we've long, people have long been waiting for progress there. So I think this is great. Right. Well, we do have marriage equality in New Zealand. Right. And uh, we have in Japan, we have a lot of, local municipalities that are starting to allow same-sex couples to register and have a limited menu of rights, but we're not that far along in Japan. Right. We're, we're nowhere in Korea. In Hong Kong, which is another part of China, which is sort of quasi-autonomous, right. but, but not totally. a strong rule of law tradition. Strong rule of law tradition. We have had some recent rulings in Hong Kong that if people go to New Zealand and get married and come back, and one of them happens to be a civil servant, right. their new spouse is entitled to be treated for employee benefits the same way as other spouses. Yeah. This is recent rulings. It's caused quite a bit of consternation with the government uh, and some, uh, some sense that perhaps the uh, Chinese government may intervene in some way, but it's unclear because they're trying to look to the West like they're progressive on LGBT issues. Yeah. And they abolish their sodomy laws, but they're not exactly supportive. Right. And there's a lot of censorship. So, you know, we'll see what happens. But Taiwan, very interesting. Yeah. A beachhead in, in Asia. Yeah. All right. That's all the time we have today. Two quick plugs. If you're in New York this coming week, please stop by Legal's annual Pride reception on Monday, June 12th for a panel discussion on the awful situation in Chechnya. Or our judicial reception on Wednesday, June 14th. More information is available on our website. Thank you for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBT Bar NY or like us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in July. 